I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. 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 I don't like that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Hello, dear readers. I am going to have a special treat for you all today. Um, even though there's a, quite a laundry list of things that I'd like to to talk about in future episodes, including more on the the history of Vlad the Impaler and more on the history of vampire lore and where Bram kind of got some of his inspiration or or um, how vampires have been written about before 1897. Um, I think it's high time that we just get into the thick of the plot. So this uh, episode will just be actually reading, um, and then we'll save some of that for later. So I'm just going to dig into the text. We left off last episode. We are um, just now he, Thomas Harker, known as Jonathan Harker, and the actual Dracula text is known as Thomas in this adaptation, um, just got out of the carriage and is entering the home of Count Dracula, the castle. Um, he just got the great uh, invitation to enter, um, introducing the lore that a, a vampire um, must be invited to enter, and similarly um, that if someone is entering a vampire, vampire's home, that they must do so on their own free will. So I'll finish up that greeting. So it says, Welcome to my home. Enter freely and merrily. Or as in the vampire Dracula text, it says, Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. As I stepped over the threshold, he grasped my hand tightly. His grip was so forceful that it made me wince, especially because his hand was so cold and the chill shot right to the bone. He then welcomed me again, and although I presumed that this was my prospective client, I felt compelled to ask, Count Dracula? He nodded and replied in a friendly tone, I am Dracula. Yes, please be welcome, Mr. Harker. I've eagerly been awaiting your arrival. But you are tired and cold. You have traveled long way in the night, and you are not used to such journeys. You could do some rest and refreshments. He motioned to the old woman, and she rushed out to fetch my luggage. Now remember, in this version, um, it appears that Dracula has one attendant, uh, who is a woman, who an older woman who is deaf and mute. Um, she's not present in the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And in fact, um, it is insinuated in Bram Stoker's Dracula that uh, all, all 
of the appearance of having multiple servants and attendants is a farce that essentially um, Dracula uses his powers of transformation to play all these roles. Um, the only other people in the home that are real, so to speak, in, in Bram Stoker's version are the three vampire women who I believe are present in this adaptation as well. Lamp in hand, the Count led me to an iron-shod door, which he opened wide. We entered a well-lit living room, where the table had already been set and a fire was burning in the fireplace. The Count went into a windowless octagonal chamber, where he opened a further door, inviting me into a large room. This would be my bedroom. On the table stood two lit wax candles and silver candlesticks, while another fire was crackling cozily in the open hearth. "'You are tired,' said the Count. "'I assume you'll want to tidy yourself up a bit before you eat, "'so I shall wait for you in the living room.' "'I did as he said, and then he hurried back to the living room. "'Dinner was on the table, and the Count offered me a seat. "'Please, eat whatever you like, "'but you must excuse me for not joining you. "'I have already had dinner already.' "'It didn't say already twice. I, "'I'm the one who said already twice.' I handed him the letter from my employer, Mr. Hawkins. He read it and handed it back to me with a genial smile. I, too, enjoyed the letter, as it stated, Sir Count, I am terribly sorry for not personally tending to you, but I am suffering from gout, which for some time forbids me to make any journeys. Fortunately, I can send someone else in my place, someone whom I fully trust as a reliable, hard-working, and energetic man. He is young but very promising lawyer, whom I have known since he was a boy, and he now works as an assistant in my law firm. I can absolutely guarantee that his proficiency in this field is excellent, and that he is silent as the grave. You may therefore discuss with him any legal particulars regarding the planned real estate purchase. I have informed him well, but to prepare for his journey, he has also acquired a great deal of the necessary knowledge himself. Therefore, I highly recommend to him, and I am yours with humble respect, Peter Hawkins. The Count lifted the lid of the tray on the table and again invited me to sit down. I didn't need to be told a third time, and without further delay, I began to eat. Although it was quite peppered, it was the best chicken filet I've ever had. There was also a good salad, cheese, bread and butter, and an old bottle of sweet Tokay wine, which all tasted ambrosial as a famished as I was. The exhaustion lifted from me, and when my client, presenting me with a cigar, offered me an armchair by the fireplace, I became so comfortable that I could have talked with him all night. The Count sat right up against the light, directly in front of the fireplace, giving me a good vantage point to observe him. With eyes that lay deep beneath his beetle brows and a nose like a vulture's beak, his features appeared very harsh, he had a domed forehead peering out from the gray hair that ran down to his shoulders, a white mustache that covered his mouth in which I detected a hardness, or even cruelty, that disappeared when he spoke or laughed, impeccable teeth, except for his unusually long canines. Uh-oh, foreshadowing there. Um, and isn't this peculiar, such a, such a stark contrast between the, the Dracula that we have, um, the image of Dracula we have in popular culture. 
um, for many years and Nosferatu was one of the the first adaptations uh, film adaptations after the book was published one of the more popular ones that took a drastic turn of making Dracula more monster creature looking than human looking um, and then obviously Bela Lugosi uh, depicted a a man with this widow's peak uh, black cape that we've come to think of the Halloween-esque vampire. Um, but nothing in the vampire popular culture depicts this man um, who just seems kind of old and ugly with white long hair and a bushy white mustache. We never see that. And white and elegant hands, though hairier than any man's hands I've ever seen. I'm assuming that's kind of a nod to his animalistic nature. We talked about anything and everything, including my journey to the castle and current political issues, about which he was very well informed. We also briefly touched upon the purpose of my trip, but he said that we would discuss it the next day. There was a pause in our conversation, and when I cast a glance out the window, I saw that dawn was breaking. All was quiet until suddenly I heard the rushing sound of wolves. It was as though a streak of lightning flickered in the Count's eyes, which glistened like a carrion's birds. Hear, hear, he said, the children of the night. What tuneful tones. I thought the sounds were horrible. Um, it's interesting, this tuneful tones. Uh, I think the famous quote is, uh, the children of the night, what so sweet music they make, or what beautiful music they make. Um, interesting. Uh change of the quote there and the note is stating that um, it seems that the the author Osmondson <clears throat> threw in alliteration whenever he could there's been some other instances of alliteration but I haven't uh, pointed it out um, I mainly pointed this one out just because I like the original quote better um, but it's interesting he apparently used this lot of alliteration because that is a, a common um, theme and, and uh, common thing to do within Icelandic literature. <clears throat> I thought the sounds were horrible, but he laughed gently and said, Oh dear sir, you city dwellers cannot understand the sentiments of an old hunter. So who else called themselves an old hunter? It was the the carriage, what would you call him? The, the carriage rider, the carriage um, driver um, who bought him, brought him to the castle. So again, there's that suspicion that perhaps this is the same person that he can transform his appearance if needed. Then he stood up saying, you must be tired. I beg your pardon for keeping you awake this long. Your bedroom is ready and you may go to bed whenever you please. Feel free to sleep until afternoon. You must rest yourself. It just so happens that I have to leave the castle and will probably not return until evening. You may be at ease, sleep well, and have pleasant dreams. He opened the door and bowed courteously, and I bid him good night, but I did not sleep until the sun had already risen high. After waking up rather late in the day, I reviewed what had happened the day before and chuckled how adventurous my travel story would sound to Wilma when I came home. I began looking around the bedroom. 
The bed curtains were made of heavy old silk, and there were very expensive-looking tapestries on the walls. As for the furnitures, no one, one couldn't get by with less than what was present. Nevertheless, all the furnishings appeared to be precious and antique. The washbowl, for example, was unusually small, but made of solid gold. When I was dressed and ready, I went into the room where I had dined the night before. It was a big hall with more tapestries on the walls. Cold food and wine were on the table, and as I came near, I saw that it had only been set for one person. The Count had left me a note on the table, reading, I will be away from home for most of the day, but hope that you shall kindly, for uh, shall kindly forgive me for this impoliteness, which I cannot help. If you could arrange all your documents, we can talk about them upon my return. Much obliged, your Dracula. After I had eaten, the meal was good, though seasoned and cooked in a different way that I'm used to. I looked for a bell to call the servants, but found nothing of the sort. I then tried to open the door to the corridor and was surprised to find it locked. Strange are the habits of this house. All was silent as the grave. I looked out the window and saw the old woman from the night before fetching water. It was between four and five o'clock, so I went back to my bedroom and began looking through and sorting the papers relating to the property purchase. Then I returned to the dining room and tried to open two of the other doors, but they were also solidly locked. The third door, however, was unbolted and led to a large corner where the sun shone in. As I entered, I saw that it was the Count's library. There were large shelves with books, some still handwritten and some very old. They seemed to cover topics such as astrology, alchemy, and magic of the Middle Ages. They were written in various languages that I didn't understand, but what surprised me most was the large collection of English volumes I found, old and new, covering a variety of subjects from poetry, old tales and sagas, to scientific publications and ordinary reference books. Markings and reader comments showed that all of them had been re read. On the table lay English newspapers and magazines. I began to entertain myself with the books and sat with them until the sun went down. The sunset was the most glorious I've ever seen, incomparable to any I've enjoyed in other places, except perhaps in the highlands of Scotland. But when the sun sank, sank beneath the horizon, everything changed in a heartbeat. The air became cold and moisture-laden, while the colors faded under the pale shimmer of the rising moon. The swallows disappeared, and in their place came bats, which are plentiful around here. One flew in through the window, and as I am disgusted by these creatures, I hurried to close it. And there is a note here that says, In Dracula, there are no bats in or near the castle. Mokhtmir Krana seems to anticipate the 1931 Universal Pictures movie Dracula, in which a large bat hovers outside the open window of the castle. So this is another thing that they've mentioned before. I think I mentioned it in the first episode that they found this odd coincidence that this Icelandic adaptation, which um, has been virtually unknown to the world because, as I mentioned before, there's only 20 copies left. It was literally not a famous publication. It was given away as a gift with purchase for a subscription to a newspaper. Um, 
no one really knew about this. So why on earth would there be similarities between this and later film and stage adaptations? Um, other than perhaps maybe notes were found, maybe these were other things in Bram's notes that were found or that Bram circulated to other people um, and that made their way to these filmmakers, who knows, but it, it is curious. Um, in that particular example, a bat just being outside a window doesn't seem that significant to me. I mean, anyone could think to put a bat in front of a window, especially considering um, there is later mention of Dracula transforming into bats, but uh, it is it is pretty curious. When I locked back, walk, looked back from the window and I, I was startled. I'll start that sentence over again. When I looked back from the window, I was startled. I was not alone. It was dusk now, and although it was not as bright as day, the moon shone through the window, casting light onto the scene. At the table in the middle of the room stood a woman, slender and dressed in light colors. She rested one hand on a, chain, on a chair near the table, and with the other she held a shawl to her shoulder. She was young and fair-skinned, and she seemed to be looking at me with curiosity. I bowed and said in my best German, "'Please forgive me, miss.' I was expecting the count. As I said this, she moved closer to me and replied in German with traces of an exotic accent. You are the foreigner we were expecting. Be welcome. It is lonely in the castle, lonely in these mountains. Her voice was curiously clear. It felt as though the sound of her words pierced my every nerve, but I was not sure whether it was a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. <clears throat> All I know was that she caressed some strings within me that before had been untouched, and it flustered me quite a bit. I felt my heartbeat quicken, as if I had a fever. <clears throat> I am not quick to be overcome by women. In fact, I'm considered rather impassive and reserved, and since I was a boy, I've never loved anyone else but my Wilma. But as I watched this woman while she spoke to me, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. She stood in front of me in the moonlight, and I couldn't recall ever seeing a girl of such breathtaking beauty. I won't provide a detailed description, as words can do her no justice, but she had golden blonde hair, which was bound in a chinon. I've seen this word before, chinon, it's like a hairstyle, a uh, hair barrette type of thing. Her eyes were blue and large. And the notions that um, as Dracula has the three, they call them kind of weird sisters, the three um, vampiresses. Um, oh. Excuse the interruption. That was my significant other, just barging into rooms and talking like he lives here. Um, so yeah, as they're saying, there's a, the three weird sisters, as they're called in Dracula. Um, what is unique about this Mokmirkana version is that um, this girl stands out as a solitary figure and because uh, has plot elements uh, particular to her. Her dress resembled those worn by beauty icons from the turn of the century, like Queen Josephine, with her neck and upper chest revealed. The note here says there that's probably referring to either Josephine de, de, Bu, 
debut Harnas, Harnas the wife of Napoleon. Um, and the reference there to the fashion was that the dresses of their time would show more skin than those of Victorian England. So we got a hussy on our hands. Uh, around her neck, she wore a necklace of glittering diamonds. You admire the view, she said. They say that our mountains are beautiful. Oh, shit. Mountains, all right. Indeed, they are. But they are so barren, so barren. Here one lives like a prisoner, wanting to go out into the world, to the big world, to men. There are no men here, and I am so fond of men. She reached out as she said this, as if overcome, and her eyes appeared to flash in the moonlight. I am glad you have come here, she said. You look so handsome and masculine. That is an advantage here in the Carpathians. It will be our pleasure to get to know you. I didn't know how to respond, as I was completely beside myself. My foremost desire was to take her in my arms and kiss her. I moved closer to her, but she disappeared when the Count suddenly entered the room with a lamp in his hand. She must have snuck up behind him or gone through a secret door in the room. Uh-oh, disappearing. Spooky. So now um, we are on... It's saying at the beginning of each of these entries that this is a different entry into the the newspaper. says this was published as a serial and different... Um, daily in their daily or weekly or what have you in the newspaper so this is published on february 9th 1900 um new entry here we're still doing uh, mr harker's journal though my dear mr harker i am truly distraught that i wasn't able to be here with you today you must think poorly of the hospitality in this old house unfortunately i could not come out sooner so either this is still his journal or he's just quoting a letter from Dracula in his journal, what seems to happen a lot. Okay, so he's just quoting Dracula speaking to him right now um, in this old house. Unfortunately, I could not come out sooner, and now I find you here in the dark. I sincerely ask for your forgiveness. My servants are not used to guests. Please excuse how primitive things are here in the Carpathians. He lit the candles and closed the shutters. I hope that you have now recovered from your journey. I am glad that you have found your way in here, for there is a lot here that may interest you. These books, he said, pointing out the English volumes, have been my friends for years, ever since I began to think about going to London, should I have the opportunity. It is thanks to them that I know about England, your pretty and powerful country. I long for London with its crowds and its commotion, its infinite activities, all that makes the big city what it is. I have lived alone for long enough. I want to get to know people. I bet he does. He wants to go to a place that's full of crowds and commotion and no one would even notice if a few people went missing in a big crowd like that. It was almost exactly what the mysterious girl had said, yet I felt a kind of cruelty in his voice. For a moment, it was as if I was looking upon a beast stalking its prey and it sent shivers down my spine. The Count seemed to have noticed that I was a bit unnerved because his strange eastern eyes, there, that reference again to the otherness about him. I don't even know what, what would be so strange and exotic about Romanian eyes in particular, um, but whatever. 
looked up at me from beneath his brows before he said in a changed tone, And how have you been during my absence? I said that I had slept for most of the day, at which he nodded and reassured me that it had been a good idea to sleep off my exertions. But what have you been doing since then? I told him truthfully that I had arranged my documents and found that the doors were locked. It had been a mere chance that I had come across this reading room, and I hoped that he was not angry with me for entering. No, not at all. Here you are always welcome, and I hope that you will spend most of your time in this room while you are in my house. This is my usual place as well. I beg you to excuse me for locking the door to the corridor. I always do that out of old habit. You are, of course, welcome to look around our castle as much as you'd like. Unfortunately, most of the rooms are empty now and have been so for many years, while dust falls upon a heap of relics from ancient times. Some of the rooms are locked, however, for reasons that no one needs to know. Ooh, big swift and tone there. Old houses like this contain many things that outsiders are not meant to see, and I hope that you will be respect that. Transylvania is not England. There is much here that British people will not understand. So that took a turn for the worst. It literally starts saying that you will can walk around anywhere in the castle that you'd like. Welcome to look around a castle as much as you like, it says. All of a sudden to like, there's shit here that is like Transylvania specific. You wouldn't get it. I bowed so as to show my consent, but noticed that he was observing me persistently. I live here now, he said, like an old hermit in the house of my ancestors. I live in hoary memories. Hoary? H-O-A-R-Y? I don't know that. Let me see. Hoary. Hoary, hoary, hoary. It says... Um, as an adjective, it is grayish-white, like hoary cobwebs, or old and trite, the hoary American notion that bigger is better. Let's see here. I live in hoary memories, but I also observe what happens in the outside world, hearing merely the echo of it, here in this deserted corner of the earth. You might find it surprising that, although my hair is white, my heart is young, and it wants to take part in life outside these castle walls, where the destinations of nations are forged and the wars of this world are fought. Let me read that again. My heart is young, and it wants to take part in life outside of these castle walls, where the destinies of nations are forged and the wars of this world are fought. I once played a role in this game and pulled quite a few of those strings. His voice grew cold. To rule, my friend, to rule, that is the only thing worth living for, whether it be over people's wills or their hearts. And there is a note here that this is the first indication of the Count's aspirations for power. And Dracula, Harker's host, is portrayed as a former military leader, but doesn't show public ambition like this. Um, yeah, this is uh, quite dark. There's a... Uh, his motivations for moving to London um, seem to be taking on quite a different tone than to simply want to be around people. Um, we're talking about ruling and going places where destinies are forged uh, and wars are fought 
and that he himself has been a part of those wars. He was silent for a moment, but then he spoke again. So you have been here most of the evening? It shortens the hours to read my books, but you had to wait for me in the twilight. I hope that you have managed to get some sleep. It was as if he was trying to find out whether I'd noticed something unusual, and if, and as I suspected it would be best not to conceal anything from him, I told him the truth. I was admiring the sun setting over your mountains, and as I'd never seen anything more magnificent, and the air, the fragrance of the forest, was like a heady wine, intoxicating. I couldn't stay away from the window. The window, he said. You have opened the window. The view is indeed stunning. These mountains are unique. But by Jove, assure me, you did close the window again before sundown. He goes on to say, and this is in a new newspaper entry. A few minutes later, yes, I did. Five or perhaps ten minutes later, I don't remember so precisely, I replied, surprised by his fervor. What the devil? he said viciously, rising halfway from his chair. The thought flashed through my mind that he might dart at me and bite my throat. Ooh, foreshadowing. So I jumped up, ready to defend myself. But the count quickly calmed down, and then he said in his usual tone, Forgive me, dear Harker. I tend to be a little irritable. But please understand this, my friend. There is a rule in this house that must never be disregarded, especially when we have guests. No window shall be left open after the close of day. There are harmful vapors, toxic gases, or whatever you call them, that make the evening air here unhealthy for strangers. This you must always remember from now on. You may not wander these rooms and hallways when darkness closes in, and for my sake, do not sleep in the unoccupied chambers, as this could have grave repercussions for the both of us. That aside, I hope nothing bad has happened to you. You are sure that you closed the window? Yes, I did. The air was getting colder, and I was swarming with bats, the most disgusting creatures I know, I said frankly. And I must confess, one of these vile things managed to get in through the window. I haven't been able to find it yet. But it must be here somewhere. The cat sat very still. The count sat very still, rubbed his hands together, and looked at me with a peculiar, observant gaze. I was just searching for it when this woman came into the library. Well, golly, I wonder who the bat was. The count seemed oddly baffled by this, and I expected him to flare up again, but instead he just asked me to explain. The woman who was in the room when you arrived. You must have seen her, I said. You came in just after her. No, I did not see her, he said, seeming distracted. I should have expected this. There are indeed things in this house which few people know about. You have experienced one of them. And what did the girl look like? Was she blonde? Yes. And dressed in pale colors, but in somewhat unusual fashion? I nodded and she had sparkling diamonds on her breast with a ruby in the center? Yes. And she must have been, let's say, rather pretty? Well, very pretty. <laughs> very pretty. <laughs> Ravishing, radiant like Venus, like Helen of Troy, a wonder of nature, one might say. 
Have you ever seen a neck like that? Such a bosom, such arms, such lips, not to speak of all the rest. My poor boy, my poor virtuous Englishman, you have probably never seen a woman like that in your whole life. There was something indecent in his voice and laughter. Excuse me for making fun of you, he said. You modern young people take everything so seriously, but we laughed about such things when I was a lad. I was really just laughing at your innocent expression, but the truth is that there is nothing to laugh about here. Did she speak to you by chance? As I recall, she welcomed me. I thought she was living here. Yes, she lives here, and she's closely related to me. Gorgeous as a goddess, but galloping mad. My heart skipped a beat. That, however, does not mean one has to fear her. She believes she is her own great-grandmother. <laughs> she believes she is her own great-grandmother. Um, I can imagine that that's because she's been living that long. Uh, and if one were to count the generations, that's how long ago it has been. This is why she always wears the same kind of clothes as seen in her great-grandmother's portrait. Some other evening, I will show you the paintings of my relatives, and I am sure you will find the women are remarkably similar. Yeah, because they're the same woman. It is, of course, nothing but innocent folly. Normally, one keeps a close eye on her, but every now and then she sneaks out at dusk, wandering through the corridors of the castle. You see, she has been unlucky in the matters of love, the poor girl, and thus she is always searching for her next suitor. I have now told you everything there is to know about her. He stared at me with a vacant look, as if thinking to himself, Any more than that, you will almost certainly not find out. I could have been mistaken, but I was quite certain he was not telling me the truth. I'm not sure why, but the Count frightens me. It's normal to feel uneasy about someone whom you don't like, but I cannot help being afraid, even though the Count is nothing but affable. The farmers here in the countryside tell me stories about the castle. One of them is about the white woman whose legend has it roams around the castle, appearing only to those who are in some kind of mortal danger. You must be familiar with tales of such white maidens in old European castles. But here, to a certain degree, the story is rooted in facts. Of course, there is no need to tell everyone about that. I bowed to show my agreed. You, you agree to not tell anyone about that? You agree to keep that to yourself that he just said... That there is a um, an old wives' tale that that a a mysterious white woman wanders the ground, finding those who are in mortal danger and doing who knows what to them, and um, it might be in facts, but please just keep that between us, okay? I trust that I do not have to tell you not to believe all the rumors you have probably heard about me or my home. Here in the mountains, people tend to be superstitious, as they say, and often old houses are linked to a host of frightening stories. You may think that you've experienced some unusual incidents here in this castle, but I assure you everything stems from natural causes and that you need not have any fear. Yes, please be assured, I don't believe in ghosts. Perfect. I figured as much, he said. England is a land of culture and practical pursuits. Eyes that have cherished the light of modern civilization never sees phantoms. So this is 
great. And what I was kind of speaking to before, the kind of differences between the very practical, secular, um, science-based Western world versus the Eastern world. And here I can almost see a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in the uh, in Dracula's tone of voice here of like, oh, surely you and the um, land of culture and practical pursuits w- would never, you know, see something in the light of modern civilization. It's a... Uh, it could be at one point hand, um, he's trying to portray it as damning his own, damning the, the, the peasants and the, the pagan faith of his, his own countrymen um, uh, while complimenting, uh, complimenting Mr. Harker's. But at the same time, I think that there's a little bit of tongue in cheek there and also a little bit of manipulation. Um, see, you people, you... you you don't believe in such things, so don't even worry about it. Just ignore it and you see it. Of course not, I replied. Those kind of beliefs are now regarded as pathological, and as far as I can tell, they are caused by hallucinations and overexcited nerves. Nothing more. Could anything be more absurd than imagining the spirits of dead people ghosting around, even dressed in the same clothes as they were when they were alive, clothes which have rotted and fallen apart by now? That's right, he said, with what seemed to me a scoffing look on his face. I like that. That's how young people are supposed to think. We old diehards may cling to our dogmas, but the future belongs to the younger generation. That is why I long for the whirlpool of young life in London. There, people have other things to think about than believing in specters. Yes, but we should look into business matters now. Will you please get the documents? I went to fetch them and came right back. The Count thoroughly examined all of the papers and bombarded me with questions. I was greatly surprised at how familiar he was with the habits and customs of people in London. Yes, but as I have already told you, I have spent years studying the heart of England, which I soon hope to enjoy in person. Unfortunately, though, I have had to learn everything from books, including the language, and I think that I might be able to learn from you now while we converse. You speak English pretty well, Sir Count. I still have a lot to learn, he said. I am familiar with the grammar and can speak so that people understand me. But when I come to London, I know that everyone will hear that I am a foreigner. I want to learn to speak English, the language, like the local people do. We started looking through the documents. The house offered to the Count was located in the east side of the city, and it was a large old mansion, which no one had lived in for a long time. The Count said that he had played that he was pleased with the property in every way. He loved that it was old and worn out, much like his own house, and he also found the nearby chapel to be an additional benefit. Here in this country, people like me cannot forget that we will one day be buried together with the crowd of common peasants, the worst earthworms who have only lived a day's life. So why go out of your way to... First of all, it's kind of a dick's thing to say, like, I don't want to be buried among peasants. I want to be buried with other noblemen, I su- suppose. But um, the the emphasis there seemed to be on who have only lived a day's life, you know, which um, the note here rightly points out, unlike vampires who live forever, or maybe unlike vampires who um, live by night and uh, humans only live by day, generally. That's interesting. 
After looking over the documents, my host invited me to dinner. He told me they had already eaten on the way home, which is why he had been delayed. He took a seat by the oven and we started chatting. So you can see the theme here that he'll always be gone during the day because he cannot be exposed to sunlight, I imagine. Um, and he'll always have already eaten because he's not going to eat this human food with him. <coughs> Excuse me. I told him about my travels and what had happened the previous night on the way to the castle. He said the driver had acted appropriately when he left the carriage, as the wolves might have attacked the horses, but usually shy away from humans. When I asked him about the gleam of light that I'd seen in the dark, he asked me whether I'd ever seen a grave of mound fires. So let's see here. What is a grave of mound fires? It says in the note is a fire seen on a, bureau, a burial mound in Norse pagan rituals. A hog was a mound erected to honor a buried person. Stoker took this information about flames and treasures from Emily Gerard's article on Transylvanian superstitions. And the night preceding Easter Sunday, witches and demons are abroad and hidden treasure are said to be betray their sight by a glowing flame. Um, such Transvanian, Transylvanian folk beliefs had much in common with their Norse counterparts. It was a consequence of their ideas of a future state. To bury with the dead in the grave not only useful implements, but also gold and ornaments, which which they could shine the halls of hell, or else splendid armor with, with the spirit could make an honorable entrance into the Valhalla. These treasures, which when very very rich were thought to betray themselves by nocturnal fires which burned above the mounds, often allured bold men to break open and rob the graves. But these mound breakers had to go prepared for a hard struggle of the inhabitant of the mound or the ghost of the buried man. So I, I guess I'm confused. Are these real glowing flames like a fire was set or uh, kind of a implied hallucinatory glowing flame or um, um, superstitious glowing flame type of thing. Uh, um, what am I trying to say here? Just like something to do with the, the something to do with the death itself. Um, at first I thought I was reading it like maybe this was a glowing flame because someone had set fire to the grave and if they did bury them with their gold and jewels, maybe some kind of chemical reaction, but um, maybe not. Uh, he said this as be, that it was believed that such fires could be seen on St. George's night, burning in places where the money had been buried. There is no doubt, he said, that there are countless coins hidden in the ground around here. The Turks, Volks, uh... Sleskers and Saxons fought in this area for many centuries and it is customary to bury one's treasures to shelter them from the enemy. But how could this money have stayed hidden for so long when it's possible to find the places where it's buried? Because peasants are and always will be cowards. They are parasites and, will, and while they will badger us whenever they can, they lack guts. 
It is also no easy task to find the money where such flames have been seen. In fact, you may find that there is no money at all, as old tales are not often reliable. But yes, it would be lovely to find a chest of glowing gold. Gold, the only thing this world will be ruled by. So, he's saying that these, that the blue light that he had seen was a real blue light that points out where the people have been buried of the past, um, but that if you go to that light, they might, you might not find anything, and that the reason why there hasn't been grave robbers digging it up and taking the money and jewels is because, not because they're moral, <laughs> uh, they don't want to disturb the dead, but because they're cowards, get it? It was as if the Count had fallen into some kind of trance as he stared blankly into the distance, scratching the chair with his fingers like an animal with his claws. I began to believe that he was not entirely sane, at least not like other men, so I will have to try to keep him in good spirits and make sure that everything is well handled, as would be expected from a lawyer. By now, Dom was already starting to break, so he's starting to get on the uh, Andracula's schedule here. He's staying up all night talking with him uh, because that's the hours that he keeps. The Count awoke from his trance and apologized for having kept me up for so long. He then wished me a good night, and I went to the bedroom. As before, once I was alone, sleep eluded me. I was overwhelmed by what had happened to me during the day, and it made me restless. To ease my mind, and as to look, and to lock as much as possible my memory, I began to write. I wrote in shorthand so that my clients wouldn't be able to read it. Even if he wanted to pry, shorthand strokes would be too difficult for the Count to crack even in his wolf, with his wolf teeth. Damn. So he is like so scared of Dracula now that he's writing in shorthand, um, which is the, the type of scribble texts that were kept by um, those maybe transcribing for a living. Um, I have a book of shorthand marks and it is absolute gibberish, just like squiggly lines that are supposed to stand in for whole words or phrases uh, doesn't make a lick of sense. But uh, this is very fascinating here that he is now writing his own journals in code to keep them from out of the his own thoughts out of the hands of the count um, who might crack the code with his wolf teeth. So he's already starting to uh, make connections between the count and um, the, his canines, his he felt like he was going to come and bite his throat when he was having an angry moment there. Um, his his animalistic hairy hands and his and his wolf-like um, fervor for finding things out. Every time I think of the girl I found in the library, the memory is as fresh as ever. What the Count told me about her may be true, but it felt as if something didn't add up. I am certain that here in this castle not everything is as it seems, but we lawyers tend to be skeptical as mistrust is our shadow spirit. So it says here in, in uh, the note that often again referring to old Norse mythology, a spirit or ghost attached to a specific person defining or influencing his character and destiny. I like shadow spirit a lot. I like that. It's a lot better than um, the kind of resurgence of the phrase spirit animal, which uh, should be 
used sparingly and with caution uh, due to the implication of of uh, whitewashing um, and uh, appropriating Native American uh, culture and their use of uh, spiritual significance, spirit animals. Um, so yeah, shadow spirit is the new spirit animal. Keep it up. I would like to see her again, though, preferably in broad daylight. Well, that ain't going to happen, buddy. You're not going to see any of these people in broad daylight. Okay, so we finished up a good chunk there. Um, and we will begin again in the next episode. Maybe next episode we can dive in into um, some more of that background history I hinted at before. Thanks. Bye. Hello. Welcome, dear reader, to Book Jockey where an aging lit major reads and analyzes lit in the public domain for no one's amusement. Currently, we're reading Powers of Darkness by Vladimir Osmundsen, which is an Icelandic translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's been a couple months since my last episode, probably about two and a half months to be fair. Um, primarily... I could give lots of excuses. You know, work has been stressful. Thanksgiving came around, the holidays, that's always stressful. Um, but the primary reason is that I'm a stupid asshole loser who can't commit to anything in life. And then there's one fucking thing I want to do that shouldn't be considered a chore. It's a choice that I made. And yet I still can't follow the fuck through because I'm a stupid asshole loser who can't do shit. But here we are. I'm trying to get back on the fucking horse and we'll try again. And so instead of a lot of chit chat, we'll just dive right back where we were. Um, surprisingly, you know, even though we've only had four episodes, we're on page 105 of Powers of Darkness. That doesn't mean much because there's so many pages of introduction and appendices and references and intro notes and blah, blah, blah. Um, and also the entire book has ginormous margins because of all the notes. Um, but... The book is only 289 pages, so we're at 105. So we've only got a lot left. I mean, not it's not that bad. Um, so I'll dive in. But first, I will take a moment to say that, who knows? I know that I'm talking to myself here, but maybe, maybe I'll get a, you know, reader slash listener to because of the fact that BBC's Dracula, um, produced, written by Stephen Moffat of Sherlock fame, uh, is now available on Netflix. And so maybe there's some people typing Dracula into the search bar of their, of their podcast app. Um, and this comes up. I'm happy to have you. You probably haven't made it to episode five because it's a steaming pile of shit. But um, in case you have, welcome. I'm also watching BBC's Dracula. Uh, I'd be curious to know what people think if anyone's listening to this. Um, 
I'm only had seen the first episode so far. It's obviously a loose adaptation of Bram Stoker's work. Um, I find Agatha Van Helsing to be charming. Um, you know something is going to be endearing within if in the first five minutes of the show, the character has a line saying, did you have intercourse with Count Dracula? You just know that you're in. You know, you've been, I'm sold. Say no more. Um, I, I love her character. I love how badass she is. I love that there is a, a badass female protagonist. Um, there are some things that I'm not quite sure about. It's hard for me to get into the low-budget uh, CGI. It's it's also interesting to have fallen in love with Dracula stories um, as an emotional child. As I mentioned in previous podcast episodes, I first read Bram Stoker's in fifth grade. Um, and then as an emotional teenager, seeing the Coppola film, um, which was very much like a love story, much more than Bram Stoker's book, um, to fall in love with the Dracula lore that was very gothic and dark and romantic and uh, horrific, um, to see a depiction of it and that's so tongue-in-cheek, like Stephen Moffat's writing is, um, with like zingy one-liners is uh, slightly off-putting, even though I live for comedy and I'm obsessed with comedy. Um, it's quite, it's quite strange. Uh, it, it definitely takes you out of the moment a bit, but it also will be one of the primary reasons why I stick with it is uh, to have a a Dracula that has a sense of humor and is just sick of everyone's shit would make sense, quite frankly. I mean, you've lived four centuries. After a while, you stop taking yourself so seriously. You'd want to have fun with shit things a little bit. You'd be bored. You know, I mean, you'd probably be depressed. You'd probably be lonely, but you'd also like be like, I gotta entertain myself. And you'd have that like detachment from taking yourself so seriously because you've had that those centuries of to gain wisdom where everything is kind of philosophically a joke. You know, world is a joke. It is. It's stupid. Um, it's a good reminder. So anyhow, let's go ahead and uh, get into this other adaptation of Dracula. So, um, I believe we are still on Jonathan Harker's journal, May 8th, midnight, coming to an end. Much has happened since my last entry, some of which is rather suspicious. A large part of the day had already passed before I awoke. When I walked into the dining room, food was on the table, but all the doors were locked as usual. There were also some foreign newspapers lying there and a letter from my Wilma, which had come by mail. That was by far the most spice, but the best spice on the table. Okay, so the letter was the best spice on the table. 
I guess that's good writing. I don't know. I was ravenous and I sat on the dining table for a long time. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to learn how to read. I was ravenous and I sat at the dining table for a long time. The more so as I couldn't help but look through the newspapers. Later, I went to the library, but as usual, the count was nowhere to be found. Every day he is out and about, which does not surprise me as he has a big estate to take care of and also happens to be an avid hunter. And I sat reading the newspapers until sunset, and then I hurried to my bedroom to shut the window. There I realized that I had forgotten to shave, and as I had nothing better to do while I waited for the count, I hung my shaving mirror in the window, took off my jacket and vest, and then picked up the razor blade and put it to my skin. I looked out the window, admiring the landscape, and thought about the letter from Wilma. I didn't notice that anyone had come into the room until I heard the Count say, Good evening, my dear young friend. He's always so cordial. Um, there's a note here that in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Jonathan Harker explains, I started for it amazed me that I had not seen him since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. Yeah, I assumed that that was going to be on the next page. I'm surprised that they took that important factoid out of this adaptation. The fact that Dracula doesn't have a um, reflection is kind of a big part of the lore. So why would you omit that part? Okay. Uh, I was startled that I gave myself a nasty cut with my razor, but I ignored the blood running down my throat and turned to answer the Count's greeting. Never have I seen anyone's appearance change so drastically. Suddenly the Count began, became as pale as a corpse, his eyes turning red, bulged out of his head, and with his hair standing up like that of an angry dog, he looked like a raging beast. Before I knew what was happening, he seized me by the throat tearing my shirt and would probably have bitten my windpipe had my rosary not gotten in the way. He must have been momentarily possessed. Soon his outburst subsided, and he asked would I forgive him for being so frenzied. But I cannot bear to see human blood, he explained. Those cuts can be dangerous, he added, more dangerous than you can imagine. And it is all because of this instrument of vanity, this mirror. Away with it. He flung the mirror towards the furnace, shattering it into countless pieces. Then he threw the shards into the coal basket and left for the dining room, saying, I will wait for you there, my dear Harker. I was uneasy about that count. <laughs> yeah, no shit. He just fucking lunged at you and tore your shirt as he was clearly not of entirely sound mind, and even though he was old and white-haired, I surmised that I would be no match for him, neither in strength nor agility, as he boasted of being a descendant of Attila, the, the king of the Huns. It seems that in this castle anything can be expected. I have spotted no other servants here, but the deaf and dumb old woman and the driver, whom I haven't seen since I arrived. This manor so large, however, that it could hide dozens of people, and for hours they'd have no knowledge of one another, in it as though the silence of death rules over this castle, and as I have no contact with anyone but the Count, he would quite easily be able to lock me up entirely, if it so suited him. 
I wouldn't even be able to get away through the window, as the castle is built on a rocky mountaintop with steep cliffs on three of its sides. Looking down, all I can see is a deep ravine where tall trees grow, so unless I could fly like a bird, I cannot escape. In broad daylight, my self-control and lack of exaggerated imagination generally keep me from fearing what darkness may bring. But if the Count has inherited some nasty tribal character from the Huns, such as an urge to kill or some other sinister trait, it is best to be cautious. I found the Count in the library skimming through magazines and newspapers. He was composed and courteous, as if nothing had happened in my bedroom. He greeted me kindly and asked how I was, as if he hadn't spoken to me earlier that day. I realized he must not have been fully aware of what had occurred. He then stood up, saying, It is not late yet, and I wondered if you would like to see the family portraits upstairs. I said that I would love to. It may not be ideal to look at the portraits by candlelight, but as I have so much to do during the day, I am unable to show them to you in a more appropriate time. Later, you can view them again in daylight, and if you don't mind waiting for a moment, I will go take care of the light so that it will be bright enough. He walked away, and I heard his footsteps as he went down the corridor and up the stairs. It seemed to be a long way to the portrait gallery. Suddenly I grew frightened, so I ran to my room and grabbed my revolver, which had remained in my travel bag, untouched since I had embarked on my journey. When I returned to the library, I was struck with a yet another shock that left me lightheaded. It was getting dark, and before leaving the library, the Count had lit all the silver candlesticks. There, in the chair by the fireplace, sat the Count's niece, her ivory arms adjoining the armrest. She had opened up her shawl, revealing her breast, which was bare down to her bosom and shining with diamonds, just like the first time I saw her. She turned her head slightly, like a flower on a stem, her bright blonde coiled upon her head, her bright blonde hair coiled upon her head in a Greek style. I had hoped that I would see her again, but was greatly surprised at the effect I allowed her to have on me, for I promised myself that it would be different next time, especially because the Count had briefed me about her. And then there's a note here. It remains unclear why Harker puts any trust in Count's words now. That is a good point. Harker is a lot of trust in the Count. Um, for someone who just lunged at him and tore his shirt and grabbed him, like, and growled at him, um, Harker's, and who's ostensibly keeping him prisoner, Harker's putting a lot of trust with him. Um, even this whole grabbing the revolver thing, it's not exactly well-written. It doesn't go into any narrative about Harker's thought process there. It simply says, I'm going to take you to show you some paintings. And then all of a sudden, Harker says he's scared and he's going to grab a, a revolver. He doesn't say, oh, I'm scared because this is the first time he's taking me upstairs to a private space. It, it, there's not a lot of narrative um, to some things that maybe should have a narrative. Eh, anyhow, um... Nevertheless, everything happened the same way as before. I experienced the same sensations again, a kind of dull and de deadly dread, but as a sort of bittersweet pain. I tried to pull myself together to guard against the effects she had on me, and I more or less succeeded, 
but the moment she turned towards me and locked her uncomparable eyes with mine, it felt as though an electric current surged throughout my body. I grabbed a nearby chair and held on to its backrest. She looked steadily into my eyes, and it didn't even occur to me that I should have greeted her or that my behavior was doltish. But evidently, neither did she see a need for salutations. It felt as though we had already known each other for a long time and therefore didn't need to explain ourselves. There's a note. In Dracula, there's a similar notion. The other was fair, as fair as she can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. It is speculated that this blonde girl reminds Harker of the Countess Dolagen von Gratz, appearing in Dracula's Guest, 1914, a story often seen as a deleted first chapter of Dracula or a study for the novel. Why did you never come up? she asked, with the same astonishing voice as last time. I've never heard such a voice before. I thought that you would come up and visit us. There's so much I would like to discuss with you. I tried to pardon myself and explain that I didn't know what she was referring to. That's right, she said, not taking her eyes off me. You will come. You will come. You are expected. Without shifting her gaze away from me, she smiled, almost imperceptibly. The blue glow in her eyes was so striking that it felt as though one of its rays had pierced right into my brain and I could feel it burn. Then I heard the Count's footsteps in the hallway. He's coming, she whispered. I must go, but remember. She got up, and for a moment she stood before me, bathed in candlelight. She was a sight more striking than any other I'd ever seen. She then proceeded to tiptoe past me so quietly that I hardly noticed. And without taking her eyes off of me, she put her white hand glittered with rings on top of mine and whispered, tell him nothing, but come and beware, beware, beware. Then she disappeared. But just as before, I didn't see what had become of her. I may, however, have heard a tiny spring click in one corner of the room where I had never seen a door before. With much effort, I tried to get a hold of myself again before the Count came in, and I somehow managed to do so, pretending to be absorbed in the map of England that was lying on the table in front of me. Come on, my dear friend, he said. Everything is ready upstairs. You must excuse us that everything is so primitive in this place. We do not have electric light here in the Carpathians. But you don't have any of the London fog here in the clean mountain air either, I said. Yes, those fog banks, he said with excitement. I've also, so yeah, why would he be excited about that, right? He can go hide in the fog with his victim. He'll be sneaky. I have also read about them in my books. I'm going to take a sip of my drink here. I think they only increase my longing for London. This fog, which turns any day into night, 
and lies like a thick blanket over the streets and squares, all over more obscure than darkness itself. I want to see it. Oh yeah, that'd be tempting. More nighttime for him. I'm afraid that you would soon tire of it. Fog is the main drawback of London. It smothers the town like a vampire sucking the blood and bone marrow of its citizens, poisoning the blood and lungs of the children, resulting in countless diseases, not to mention all the pernicious crimes committed under its cloak, crimes that would otherwise be quite impossible to perpetrate. I really love how, like, literature in the 1800s was, like, so fucking heavy-handed. Like, yeah, we already fucking gathered that that was the insinuation that you'd commit crimes under the cloak of the fog. And and we already gathered there was some kind of, like, <laughs> metaphor for vampires and yada yada. It's just like they're just like, we're going to really let you know what we're talking about. Um, And so then there's a note here. While in modern movies, the infamous Whitechapel murders mostly take place in gaslit alleys swirling with the fog, the actual Ripper killings were committed on clear nights in unlit streets. Typical for London by the turn of the 19th century was a mixture of smoke and fog. In July 1905, the word smog was coined at the Public Health Congress in London. Harker must mean this unhealthy combination of humid air, smoke, and sulfur dioxide. Normal mist also occurs in the mountains, as described in the following chapters. So yeah, that's talking about that's what they're talking about with the health hazards, diseases he mentioned in the air. Yes, the count said, breathless with excitement, while fire seemed to spark in his eyes. Yes, these crimes, these horrible murders. Those slaughtered women found in sacks, drifting in the Thames, this blood that runs, runs, and flows, with no killer to be found. I don't think I wrongly accuse him when I say that he seemed to be licking his lips with lust when I mentioned the murders. Yes, it is a tragedy, he said, and these murders will never be solved, ever. Your writer, Conan Doyle, has written many good books about London, and I read your newspapers. According to them, barely two or three percent of all homicide cases are solved. Yes, London is indeed a remarkable city. (laughs) That's pretty good. I like that. Then perhaps, my good fellow, it would be best if you stayed in police custody once you are there, I thought to myself. Yeah, that's a fucking straight-up creepy-ass shit to say. All right, resuming with the same journal entry. Mm. Taking another sip. We walk down the hall, the Count leading the way with the light. Then we climb the stone stairs and reach an iron-clad oak door. He opened it, and we entered the portrait gallery. When the Count closed the door again, I thought I saw something dart across the other end of the hall, a big, hairy animal of some kind. I was quite startled, and my host noticed. "'What is the matter?' he asked. "'Have you suddenly taken ill? I did tell you that the air in these old rooms would be harmful.' "'No, there is nothing wrong with me. But what is there at the far end of the gallery?' 
there is nothing. Or did you mean the large painting? Now I saw nothing either, but I somewhat sheepishly told him what I believed to have seen. He laughed at me and said, I will not say it is just your imagination, dear Harker. No, that I will not say, because you claim it with such conviction. But if you did indeed see something, it must have been a rat. There are plenty of them in these old houses. No, I dare say what I saw was the size of a... A cat, he said. Many parts of the castle are barely more than ruins, and the cats have multiplied. It is their instinct to hunt rats and mice. Natural laws are the same everywhere. The stronger and smarter creatures live off the weak and dumb. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. What's Dracula insinuating there? The gallery was unusually large. At the far end hung a port large portrait, which at first seemed to turn the page portray the unknown lady whom I had now seen twice in the library. So if we recall, like Dracula was saying something to the effect of um, she seems to dress and have an affectation to dress like her great-grandmother or something like that. So Dracula was trying to explain why she looks so antiquated and explain that she's a relation of this person. That's probably why she looks like this painting. But we know better. It looked so much like her that it was impossible to distinguish the same eyes and look, the same countenance in all respects, the same hairstyle and the same clothes. The likeness was executed life-size by one of the masters of the beginning of this century. The woman was reclining on a chair or some kind of divan with flowery shrubs and trees behind her. The artist arrangement, although rather pretentious, had same of had some effect. He had also allowed himself to make some changes to her garments, which the ladies of those times would no doubt have considered proper, although they probably would have fainted if they were to see the bicycle garments worn by women today. Ooh, bicycle garments, I do declare. At first glance, the picture surprised me greatly. She looked like an exact replica of the noble girl I had seen here in the house, but I soon collected my thoughts and recalled what the Count had told me. I knew that this was not her and the portrait, but some female ancestor of hers. This had to be the reason why they appeared so much alike, especially as the portrait was full scale. When I took a closer look, I saw that the lady in the portrait wore on her chest the same diamond jewelry with a ruby in the center. She also had a belt around her middle, displaying a brooch with dragon jewels. And so then there's a note here. Um, Although I could find no other mentioning of dragon jewels in Icelandic literature, dragons played an important role in Icelandic myths and were also depicted on jewelry. So maybe saying that uh, Bram Stoker never called them dragon jewels. I gazed at the portrait entranced, while the Count watched me with eager curiosity. (laughs) My friend, he said, you do not have to be embarrassed. You are not the first person she has confused, and you will probably not be the last. But look at her now. Watch closely, he continued, raising the candelabra, 
that although it was very heavy, appeared weightless in his hand, as if it were just a wax candle. These breasts, which poets would compare to alabaster, your language has no words to express it. Your poor, bloodless people, neither snow nor alabaster, and that skin, firm and soft as down feathers to the touch, and that unrivaled physique. I looked at him and saw that his mask had now fallen. In that moment, I realized that he was an old libertine. And these lips, he said, pursing his own a little, as if he were swallowing up the painting. Then he shared more pictures with me, such as a portrait of a naked woman being sold by a slave trader, what? Displayed at the last show. All right, there's a note here. I'm going to need a note for that one. The Icelandic text allows two interpretations. Either the picture was seen at the latest art show or the woman in the picture is being offered as the latest slave trade show. In Britain, however, slavery was already counteracted by the habeas corpus clause in the Magna Carta in 1215. It seems very improbable that Harker ever saw a slave market. A few pages later, we will learn that he knows savages only from pictures. The topic of a nude female slave being presented by a slave trader was popular with 19th century painters such as Jean-Louis Jerome, Ernest Norman, John William Waterhouse, and Geza Udarvi. Okay. Um, the Count introduced each painting with a very indecent description. You were not saying anything, he said. No, Sir Count, you are so well-spoken, I have nothing to add. It is the cold blood in you, Englishmen. You do not know the power of love and beauty. And still, I have read that English women are among the most enchanting in the world. There are quite a lot of handsome girls there, yes, I said. Like her, up there? Um, I answered truthfully that I'd never seen anyone like her, but also that I was generally unfamiliar with women and that I only knew the fine ladies pictured in magazines and newspapers, some of which were thought to outshine others when it comes to beauty. I have seen these illustrations. They are captivating, he said. I have had some of them sent to me for my own enjoyment. <laughs> sent to me. Uh, excuse me, can you uh, send me some uh, pictures of fine young ladies? But a picture is just a picture, not the same as flesh and blood. Whose portrait is this, then? I asked. A cousin of mine, he said. The family blood was pure in her veins, as her mother was also of our clan. It has been a custom in our family that the men do not marry outside of the clan, as it has usually ended badly when they do. The women have been short-lived, and the children rarely reach adulthood. Uh, I was horrified. It was as if there was something in the triumphant in his voice. So he just said that we're all inbred. Um, and that if you marry outside of your family, that's when the children die. Okay. You know. That whole Dracula lore, the whole inbreeding lore. <clears throat> okay. 
guess we're still on the same same entry here. But some of our daughters, he said, have married outside of the family as they have not been able to find a match amongst their relatives. Because our daughters have always been the most beautiful women, distant kin from the noblest clans in Europe have joined our family, although they hardly possess the same rank as ours. She up there, he arched his head towards the large portrait. Even from childhood, she was one of those women who held the hearts of men at, her, at their fingertips, playing with them as a child plays with grapes before sucking out the liquid. Whoop, that's an image. He slipped his arms through mine and began leading me back around the gallery, saying, She married a young Austrian man, a nobleman. The name does not matter, but you can look it up in many books if you want, as she made it famous. She understood that each gift of nature bestowed upon man its fullest extent is the gift of power. Artistry, prowess, wisdom, and beauty. All of that is power. It is passed on from one generation to the next, my good friend. Nature is always working. It is constantly trying to produce something more refined, squandering much material, selecting and rejecting. That is that which is inferior contributes its part, and then it is discarded like trash. He waved his hand as if he were throwing something away, and his face turned cruel. There was not the slightest trace of human feeling in it. Hmm. But then, he said, perhaps once or twice... In a generation, the hard work pays off and the family flourishes. The truly elite among them rise to the top. Although the Count has a remarkable number of English words in the, at the ready, he had a hard time coming up with these last ones. He always tends to be at a loss for words when enthusiasm seizes him. She up there, he said, she had the power, and that is why she had the right to rule. She was blessed with everything. Beauty, as you can see, intel intellect and eloquence, nobility and willpower and strength. She held the destinies of a whole nations in her hand, through, though few suspected it. Heads of state, kings and emperors lay at her feet or in her arms. She knew very well that such a woman possessing all of these qualities could not be bought for all the gold in the world, and thus she could make everyone her slave, the most humble slaves whom she could wrap around her finger because they imagined that they possessed her, when in fact she was the one holding the reins in her beautiful hands. Everyone danced like a puppet beneath her fingers. She knew how to rule, and she knew that such is the supreme goal of life. She became a widow early, he said. Her husband withered up. The poor devil had been sick since childhood, although he was from a noble line. He laughed contemptuously. It was said that she cared for him. He was a good-looking lad. His portrait is there. But the love of our women is like a consuming flame, and he, he melted from it like a wax candle thrown into a blazing bonfire. We of the genius Dracula, a primary line of the Slezkers, 
sparklers. I can I can read. It says here that the historical Dracula dynasty ruled over Latia was Stoker's vampires count lived in the northeast corner of Transylvania, the mountaintop on which I contend Stoker imagined his castle Dracula to be located, Mount Isvolor C. Liman Louis, actually belonged to a district with 63% share of Sleskler's Zeckler's S. Z-E-K-L-E-R-S in the population versus 2% in the Bistrick district region. All right. Cool. Um, so with this last minute switch, Stoker may have tried to resolve the Wallachian ancestry of his Dracula race. So basically, I guess what they're trying to explain here is that he lived in a region where there wasn't um, many Wallachians and like why would he be there and Bram Stoker's kind of scrambling to be like there's these kind of people and these kind of people and I don't know he was one of, one of these whatever we believe that our kin descends from the ancient Huns who once swept over across Europe like wildfire destroying nations and their people as the story goes, the Huns were descendants of the Scythian witches who had been banished to the woods where they commingled with the demons. Dang. Okay, well, that explains a lot. These tales, of course, are like any other of the sort, but it is known that no demon or wizard has ever been greater or more powerful than Attila, our ancestor. A note here, the lines in Dracula mentioning the battles of Dracula dynasty with the Turks are omitted in the mock Mercana, eliminating possible associations with historical persons, that is, the anti-Turkish campaigners with the Dracula clan. Therefore, it is not surprising that we, his descendants, hate and love more passionately than other mortals. But I have now come a long way from our story. She became a widow, but as you might guess, such a trivial incident did not matter to such a woman. No historian has ever suspected how much power she held, and that is why some things will never be fully explained. The few who know, I could mention names, but it is not necessary, can prove that there was hardly a political event at that time in which she did not have her pretty finger in the pie. In fact, for most of these occurrences, some sort of planning can be traced right back to her bedchamber, for there was a queen, and it is from there that she reigned in secret. Or oh, for there she was a queen. And it says here, this is another possible allusion to Josephine de Buharnius, who was said to rule the world from her bedroom. And that was the note earlier when I talked about um, her immodest dress and who would have worn something like that, but Josephine. What a grand life. No law but love and free will. What a hippie she was. This picture was painted in Paris two years before Napoleon was crowned. It was a few years later that she met a man in Vienna 
who, like her, was of the Dracula family. He was younger than her in years, but women like her never age. She was more beautiful than ever, and he was like un any unlike anyone she had ever fallen for, a man cut from the same wood as her. Um, it says here, the only other male member of Dracula's family mentioned so far who would qualify as Harker's host himself, the first cousin of the lady in the portrait. This would explain his surprisingly intimate knowledge of the story that is about to be told. Oh, shit. It was as if the two fires had met. Oh, you could rational children of the West. You do not know this kind of love. A love as biting as the bitterest hatred, with kisses that burn like glowing iron and embraces. <sighs> but no more of that. She married him and moved here with him to the ancient family estate, which was, of course, not as decrepit as it is today. And here they lived together as one fire, both created to rule. If these old walls could talk, they would tell many stories that your cool English virtue could never dream of. Although even I can appreciate that virtue, as it is also a form of power. Yet we, Attila's children, have a natural, truly different, a nature truly different from yours. Oh, you're going to hate the ending of this story. I have read about eternal love from your English books, but perhaps I will come to understand its meaning when I arrive in London, as I do not yet fully know what it means, or rather, I do not understand the meaning you attach to it. Love has its lifespan, like the flower in the field. Once in full bloom, it quickly withers away. Then spring returns, but not the same flower, nor one of the same root. This is a law of nature. Once passion has blazed at its peak, it is more likely to be extinguished. This love of theirs eventually burned out, as love usually does, or hers at least. She was one of those women. He lowered his voice to a mysterious whisper. I will tell you, my friend, she was one of those women whose life is too rich to have just one man. Yes, such creatures do exist, but no more of that. She got herself a lover, a pretty boy from the mountains here, a country bumpkin, as you would call him, although we Zesklers are all aristocrats. For her, it was no disgrace, and her husband should have understood that and let her live her life the way she needed to, but he did not, and that was a major mistake on his part. She was his dutiful wife, nevertheless, and she managed the castle's household as was expected of a noble lady. Simply put, as his spouse, she paid him proper respect and performed her duties to him. Her personal affairs were none of his business. None of his business, I blurted out, unintended. Certainly not, dear friend. Love is free. It is detached from all other commitments and circumstances. In our clan, this has always been the applicable law. His refusal to accept this, as I said, 
was a great and punishable mistake. Perhaps the fire of love had not yet begin, been extinguished in him as it had been in her. It could be that within him there still survived a few glowing embers, which would explain his actions, but not excuse them, for he certainly did not act in the honorary way of a nobleman. Instead, he acted like a lowly, lowly commoner. He belittled himself by spying on her and her lover. One evening, he burst in on them and, without even realizing how ridiculous it was, began to play the role of the betrayed husband, which was far beneath his dignity. He then let himself have his revenge. And how do you think he accomplished this, my dear friend? Plain and simple, and undeniably funny as it was, he had the door to the countess's chamber nailed shut, letting them stay in there by themselves. But it was not his intention that they should starve to death, for they lacked neither food nor drink. It is said that she saw to that himself. Mm, it is said that he saw to that himself. All the servants were dismissed, except for the most loyal and reliable one. The castle, then, was as quiet as a dead man's grave. Can you imagine, with your mind's eye, the lovers lingering, living there in that room? In the beginning, I would imagine, they lived as if they were in paradise. She was too proud to know the meaning of fear, and he, the poor boy, must have considered himself richer than a king, having her all to himself. The Count, however, knew very well how he would have his requital. Knowing the Countess and the devouring flame of her emotions, he sensed that her lover, being one of life's wax candles, would melt at such heat as her first husband had done. Some people die, others go mad. Poor, useless devils. And so the Count just bided his time. It took several months until one evening, when the moon was waxing, the window of the locked room, the little tower room in the southeast, was opened. It was said that the terrible sound of an insane, anguished cries could be heard. Help me! Help me! Help me! She is killing me! The next moment, it seemed as if someone had stepped into the window sill and plunged out, head first. All right. Have you not seen the abyss out there? You can see it outside your window, but here, at the top of the tower, the drop is several hundred feet. When he was found there, there among the cliffs, there was not much left for him for her soft arms to embrace. Okay, let's read a couple of these notes before we close out the podcast episode. Um, let's see here. It's saying here that uh, another reference to Josephine de Bar-Arnius, um, that she also had many affairs before and after she married Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, it's also said here that the disdain with which Harker's host 
describes his first cousin's second husband. Here, cast doubts on our suspicion that both counts might be the same person. And that disdain that they're referring to um, says that the sentence that the spying that he did was far beneath his dignity. I don't know. I don't think that it makes me cast doubts that it was the same person. Hmm. Well, dear readers, I'm going to do... We're closing out the hour here. I'm going to have some reflection on that. Do a little research on jogging my memory. The differences between this and Bram Stoker's version. I really don't recall most of that from Bram Stoker's version, honestly. So I'm going to be curious to see what I can find out. Um, And then we will see you next episode. Good night.